All right, so uh, week nine, the living temples is what we're looking at tonight. Uh, and so we'll uh, kind of be going through uh, a couple of things. Um, uh, we're going to look at God's return to the physical temple and then look at the living temples that are described in the New Testament. All right, so um, we'll look at some scriptures tonight and uh, read read a few of those, and then we'll we'll, we'll just kind of find some some interesting things. So the first thing we look at um, is you know we we talked last week about all the way from uh, we talked about the second temple second temple. So from Zerubbabel returning and beginning the process all the way until Herod demolished that building, but then built right on top of those ruins and built his grand temple that took forty something years. Um, and then that lasted all the way up until A.D. 70 when the Romans came in and completely destroyed it and fulfilled Jesus' prophecy whenever he said, not one stone will be left on top of another. And uh, we know that uh, Josephus tells us that whenever the Romans set fire to that temple, that the gold melted and melted down in between the stones. And so the Roman soldiers got metal rods. They started prying the stones apart, trying to get to all the gold that was down there melted into the, in between the stones. So literally no stone was left on top of another. <coughs> On top of that, on top of that temple mount, whenever they got done, so Jesus's prophecy of that was fulfilled. Um, <clears throat> but let's back up a little bit and kind of look at the gospel accounts and the the act, uh, some of the acts uh, accounts and some of the things we see in the letters, and see what it has to say about these living temples. There's three of them, and so that's why it says at the top in the gospels, acts, and letters, three living temples are mentioned. So we'll see what those are. All right, and so the first thing we see, the presence of God returns to the temple. How does the presence of God return to the temple? Y'all tell me. This is, a, this is a, one of those good Jesus. Sunday school questions. What? Jesus. Jesus, right? When Jesus walks in, he, uh, God has returned to the temple. And so the gospel writers are very clear in identifying Jesus with the presence of God. Okay, so these gospel writers are not mincing words. They... Uh, they just they, they put it out there pretty clearly that um, uh, Jesus is God. He's not a good man. He's not a great prophet. He is God in the flesh, and they make they make that clear. Matthew, uh, in the very first part of Matthew chapter one, they call God uh, call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us, and he quotes from Isaiah seven fourteen. And so Emmanuel literally means God with us. And so he's saying that this Jesus is Emmanuel. You says you will call his name Emmanuel, and, uh, and or he will be called Emmanuel. And so uh, he's equating Jesus with this uh, prophecy from Isaiah seven fourteen uh, that talks about uh, the the, mess, the Messiah and that messianic expectation. So Matthew starts right from the very beginning, saying that uh, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then interestingly, he ends with that same idea. Matthew 28, 20, we know that that's the end of the Great Commission passage. And uh, Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, uh, and surely, or the Old King James Version, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Okay? Um, so, surely, I'm, surely, or lo, I'm with you always to the ends of the age. And so, in other words, uh, it's almost like Jesus is saying, and, you know, and surely, Emmanuel, I am with you all the way up to the end of the age. He, he kind of... So that's kind of the bookends of Matthew's gospel. God with us, God with us. God is with us now here in the flesh. As Jesus leaves, he says, I will be with you even till the end of the age. And so Matthew is equating uh, Jesus with the presence of God. Mark and Luke do the same thing through the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's mission was to prepare the way for who? The Lord. 
the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Um, and this is, uh, uh, you find this in Mark chapter 1, verse 3, Luke 176, which Luke 176 is Zechariah's, uh, or, uh, yeah, Zechariah's prophecy about his son, John the Baptist, that he would be uh, the precursor of the Lord. And so uh, it's this, uh, John the Baptist has this mission to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 43 through 5, which is the uh, prophecy there of one who will make way, uh, make a way in the wilderness for the Lord. You know that, that prophecy concerning uh, John the Baptist. Um, uh, that 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 word Lord uh, clearly refers to God. It re- clearly refers to a divine figure. So it's not like you could say, well, he's talking about a, a master or a boss or anything like that. If you take that quote from Isaiah 40, it's clearly talking about God. And um, and one thing that we need to know about Scripture. Um, you know, back then, whenever they quoted a passage, that was like them saying, we know as it says in John 3.16, da 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 it's saying something. But they didn't have verses and chapter numbers and all kind of stuff. So they would just say a phrase from that passage. And what that did to those Jewish people, because remember, those Jewish people knew their scriptures, uh, especially the further along you got in your studies. You knew, you memorized the Torah. You memorized the prophets and all that kind of stuff. And so whenever they said, um, the voice of one in the wilderness crying, "Make way, the you know, make ready the way of the Lord." Um, they all of a sudden knew that they, that whole passage, that whole context came to mind, and so they would know. Whoa, he's he's supposed to be preparing the way for God, for this divine figure, for Messiah coming through. And so Mark and Luke are equating Jesus with the presence of God, and then John chapter one, one of the one of my favorite parts of, of Scripture. I think it's just a beautiful passage. Um, uh, John talks about the Word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whatever this Word is, you know, John's saying, hey, whatever this Word is, uh, it is God. So it's not, he's not being tricky about it. You know, there's no way to, to say, well, that's not what he really meant, because he says the Word is God. And he says in verse one fourteen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so whatever this Word is that's God has now put on flesh, and now he dwells among us. Um, he says, we have seen him, uh, seen his glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So verse 14 says, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Then it says, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And then verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you see that connection that John makes. There's the Word. It becomes flesh. Um, it's full of grace and truth. And Jesus came with gra- or grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he just makes a very step-by-step, logical, logically solid argument. You know, we could write that out on, on the we could write it out on the board and just see the logical connections that John makes to where it clearly says there is this Word and that Word equals Jesus. And so he equates that Word is God and, and Jesus is that Word. So. So all four Gospels make a very clear uh, distinction that Jesus is the presence of God. And so, uh, so why, why did he come? Well, the arrival of the presence of Jesus uh, is the presence of God, Jesus there, is the return of God's presence to establish a new covenant with his people. And why did Jesus came? He came to restore the kingdom, to make a way for people to have that relationship with God once again. So he is... He is the new covenant. Whenever he was there in the Last Supper, uh, he said this, uh, uh, you know, holding the cup, he said this, uh, 
is the, the blood of the new covenant. This cup is the my blood, the new covenant, uh, which is given for you. And so, um, uh, so Jesus came, that presence of God came to establish a new covenant with his people, which is what, you know, whenever the Lord came and, and dwelled the temple, that was sort of, you know, the physical manifestation of the new covenant that he had made with the, with the people. And, and so there's lots of this, uh, this imagery there that kind of ties into that. And then just a significant point, Jesus walking through the gates of the temple is a significant moment in the story of Israel. Um, you know, you think about the the uh, presence of God had been in, the temple had been empty of the presence of God for over six hundred years um, before Jesus uh, for, before Jesus came and, and walked in there, and so um, that's a very even though the Israelites missed it, and that's the next blank. The Israelites completely miss it. Um, that's a significant moment because Yahweh has walked back into the temple. The glory of the Lord, even though it's veiled in this human form, has walked into the temple complex. And uh, you know, there's no indication that we have that you know, Jesus would have never walked into the temple building itself because he wasn't of the, the priesthood that, that went in there. But remember, whenever we talked about the temple, that whole area was considered the temple. When you were up there on the temple mount, that whole area was considered uh, considered the temple. And so you had the outer courts, and we've looked at that diagram before. We've had the outer courts and all those kind of places. Um, uh, and so there was, a, there was an interesting diagram in the book uh, that showed that Jesus probably um, got into that inner chamber of the, uh, that inner section of the temple. So there's the temple building, that courtyard that's right around there. That's probably about as far as Jesus would have ever gotten um, as, he, uh, as, as he made his way. That's where, at least as a child, he probably would have been brought uh, to be you know, dedicated to the Lord and stuff like that. Um, and so uh, that's about as close as Jesus would have ever gotten to the actual physical temple building. But so Jesus, the presence of God, walks into uh, the temple mount, and the Israelites completely, completely miss it. So finally, God has come in, but but they uh, they miss it. They're looking for something else. All right, so let's look at the rejection of Jesus. Since they miss it, uh, let's see uh, some of this rejection as it plays out. In Scripture, um, the religious leaders reject Jesus and instantly begin plotting against him early on in his ministry. This is we can see this in Mark uh, chapter three. Now let me let me turn over there real quick. Uh, Mark chapter three. <clears throat> okay, he. Um, wait, that's not right. Is that right? I thought it was Mark chapter 3. Maybe I had that written down in the wrong spot. I think it maybe it was John chapter 3. Let me see. Mark chapter 3. I wanted to read this section because it was... Huh? people in here, huh? <laughs> Sorry, I've got to um, look at real quick. I think I wrote down the, the wrong passage of scripture. Because um, this was a, uh, this really made it very clear how, uh, how they had uh, rejected Jesus and how they started this plot plot early on. So I wanted to 
wanted to be able to show that to you guys. Is that, I, oh, I was looking at the end of the chapter. Why am I looking at the end of the chapter? Okay, yeah. So 3, 6, and then it says um, uh, all the way through. Yeah, so he entered the synagogue. Let me just start with verse 1. He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with her hand. Um, he healed him, verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? They were silent. He looked around at them with anger, greeted their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, and then John chapter 11. So the next part, that's, I guess that's what I was trying to find. There's John chapter 11. So these, they immediately began plotting him. So that's early on in his ministry, Mark chapter 3. Um, they began plotting against him. And then John chapter 11 just sort of shows the level of what they're willing to do in order to, uh, to come after him. Uh, verse 45 through 57 of John chapter 11. This is the the next part there in your in your book. These religious leaders will stop at nothing to get rid of Jesus, so they have intentional plotting at the highest level. This just kind of shows the depth, you know, because we know that the religious leaders didn't like Jesus, um, but uh, I think, you know, I've read this before, but I think I've kind of glazed over how significant this is, because this is like upper-level corruption. Do we know anything about corruption in the government in the United States? You know, do we? I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard anything about corruption in government. This is like corruption at the highest level of the of the Jewish religious establishment, so to speak. John eleven forty five through fifty seven. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had uh, come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, "What are we to do? For this man performs many signs." If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That word place refers to the temple. Some translations will say they will come and take away our temple and our nation. Yes? Are you recording that? Uh-huh. I didn't remember you saying that. Okay. Yeah, we're good. Um, and so, so the Pharisees, some of these people see this miracle, okay? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So anybody who's ever raised somebody from the dead before? I mean, you know, Jesus, if, unless God is significantly working in somebody's life, or they are God, this isn't going to happen, right? And so uh, Jesus has to be somebody, even if you don't completely buy into the fact that he's God yet, he's got to be somebody more significant than these people have ever seen in their life. And so the Pharisees hear about this, and what do they say? If the Romans find out about this, they're going to tear down our temple. <laughs> you know? I mean, that'd be like that'd be like yeah, our they church. Lose all their power. They would. They would lose all. The, they lose all their power. They're more concerned about their building, you know, and that structure than they were about what amazing thing had just happened for somebody. Right. Some churches are, are this way. I'm very thankful that legitimately our church. I can say our church is in this way. But you know, I've heard of churches before where they got a new youth pastor, a new children's minister who is really bringing in the kids, and they wind up firing him because they don't want the kids to tear up the building. You know, yeah. that's kind of the same. Kind of situation well, that. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes just because you don't like somebody, you know, you you throw away everything that they might be doing that's good, and that's basically what the Pharisees are doing here. Um, you know, some the people come and tell the Pharisees, "Oh, this is amazing! Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead." And they're like, man. If Romans find out about this, they're going to tear down our religious structure. <laughs> and so, and so they, uh, 
they got to get rid of Jesus. And so verse 49 picks up, says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so in other words, he says, Hey guys, listen, listen, listen. The Romans aren't going to come in. We're not going to let the Romans come in and, and kill us and destroy our temple. It's better that one person die than all of us die. So who's that one person going to be? Jesus. And it says, verse, 50, uh, verse 51, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not uh, for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Okay, I've read that verse before, but I've never read that verse before. Okay, let me read that again. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. So in other words, Caiaphas didn't say this of his own will. Something else was saying this through Caiaphas. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So in other words, Caiaphas himself had unknowingly prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the sake of the nation of Israel, and not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of God's children who were scattered all over the world. In other words, Caiaphas had unknowingly prophesied that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who was going to come in and bring about the redemption of God's people. What an amazing verse, you know. Uh, it's just that really, man, I'd never read that and understood what it was really saying. And so Caiaphas, unwittingly, stupidly, had already prophesied the, uh, the facts of the Messiah. And so he said that, uh, so from that day on, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so the rest of the chapter kind of talks about the ways that Jesus had to be careful uh, from that point on. So there was intentional plotting at the highest level. So this is religious government corruption. They got a target on somebody. This is like the CIA saying, we're going to go, we're going to, we got to get rid of this person. We got to silence this person, assassinate this person in order to keep our whole system going the way it is. Remember last week we talked about that high priest structure under King Herod was basically up for the highest bidder. And so the house of Caiaphas had been in control, that his family had been in control for a while because they were a wealthy uh, to-do family there in the, uh, in the region. And so there's intentional plotting. Uh, there's an illegal trial. You may have heard this before that Jesus' trial uh, on that evening was illegal. This is just another example that the religious leaders would stop at nothing to get rid of Jesus. Um, when I was studying today, uh, one of my books said that the trial of Jesus was as legal. Um, and uh, it said for as much as 27 reasons, uh, it was illegal. And so it wasn't just like it was illegal, because I've always heard it was illegal because it was convened at night. You know, but that was just one of the many reasons. Uh, they said that there was many as 27 different reasons, if you got really nitpicky, um, that potentially it could have been illegal. They say some of those some of those rules that it would have broken don't really show up in Jewish law until later on, so they don't know if they were in practice during the time of Jesus or not. But they indicate five at least that the uh, Mishnaic code uh, for sure um, uh, for sure uh, were broken that night. Uh, the first one is that they improperly convened in the high priest's house. Uh, so there's something about uh, they're supposed to convene in the uh, you know, outside the temple was a, a room where the Sanhedrin met. Or last week when we looked at that video of the new temple, they had that meeting place with the Sanhedrin. Um, in that day and time, it was the building or the house of hewn stones or the, uh, 
room, a few stones, something like that. Um, that's where they met in order to do their, their business. And so by meeting in Caiaphas's house, they weren't meeting in the official place that they were supposed to meet to make judgments and do a ruling. Another one is that they met during the night. No, you know, no trial was supposed to meet at nighttime. Um, they met on a Sabbath eve. That's not supposed to say even. That's supposed to say eve. It's not like they could have met on an odd Sabbath and it would have been okay. Uh, it's, that's supposed to be Sabbath, Sabbath Eve. And so uh, they met on a Sabbath Eve or a feast day. And the reason that this is improper is because you, the next thing, they reached a guilty verdict on the same day. You're supposed to, in a capital trial, murder or trial ending in death penalty, you're supposed to have the trial on one day. You couldn't reach a verdict until the next day. And so uh, you also weren't supposed to uh, carry out a sentence or create a death sentence on the Sabbath uh, on the Sabbath day, and so you couldn't you couldn't meet on the Sabbath day, so they also could not have met on Sabbath Eve. So from sundown on Thursday to sundown on Friday, they couldn't meet that day uh, to have a capital murder trial or a capital punishment trial because they couldn't meet on Saturday to make a verdict. Does that make sense? Do I make that clear enough? Some of y'all looking confused. Um, and so basically, they couldn't start a they couldn't start a trial that would end in a murder penalty on Thursday. But they did. They started it on Thursday evening after they arrested him. And so they, uh, they had the trial and they had a guilty verdict on the same day. That was uh, against the law because they wanted you to be able to have time to think about it and uh, really, really consider it. Um, there was a, there, the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men. Uh, number 71 was, was the high priest. He was the uh, tiebreaker vote, basically. Um, and they were all supposed to have time to consider their vote and carefully cast their vote, which you know the story, they didn't do that. They just got an uproar, tore the robes, and pronounced them guilty. Um, and then it was based on inadequate grounds for blasphemy. Uh, the law had very specific uh, definition of what blasphemy was. It said you had to specifically say something uh, bad against the name of Yahweh. And so you had to literally say, you know, Yahweh is blah, blah, blah. You had to say something including the specific name of Yahweh in order for it to be considered blasphemy. They said, uh, they said that there were some other things you could speak against the temple, which is what they accused Jesus of, and you know things like that, but those were not death penalty, um, immediate death penalty type uh, circumstances. And so Jesus never in his confession even says anything specifically, Yahweh, which Jesus wouldn't have because he was God himself. But he said, I am God. And he, but he didn't say um, anything about Yahweh, but he said, you know, basically he said Yahweh whenever he said I am. And so that's what they accused him of. That's when they ripped open their, their coats and stuff like that. So uh, that one's one that was kind of iffy to me. Um, but it could be that he was based on inadequate grounds for blasphemy. But even with all those, even with four out of five, um, light getting in your eyes there? <laughs> you move over here. Uh, the trial of Jesus was, was illegally done. But the religious leaders were willing to break those rules in order to get rid of him. Um, and then the last thing is their allegiance to Caesar. Their allegiance to Caesar rather than Yahweh. John nineteen fifteen. Anybody ever see the Passion of the Christ movie? Anybody ever see that? Um, we know there's a part um, that they took out where it says that the blood of his blood be on our hands and the hands of our children, which is in Scripture, but they said that that was anti-Semitic, so they made him take that part out. Um, but there is a part that they left in there where uh, Pilate says, Would you have me kill your king? And what was their response? We have no king but Caesar. And so in other words, the Jewish religious leaders were paying their allegiance to a man who claimed to be a divine being, to claim to be God. 
And uh, even in the movie, you can kind of see Pilate kind of yeah. go back a little bit, kind of like, oh, wow, these guys are willing to do nothing, or willing to do anything in order to get this man executed. And so um, they uh, went so far as to pledge their allegiance to Caesar rather than to Yahweh. God was supposed to be their king. And they were looking for a Messiah who would do what? Free them from Roman rule and reestablish the Israelite you know, nation and bring them back under you know, God's rule. But they were willing just to get Jesus dead. They were willing to say, Caesar is our king. Pledge allegiance to Caesar, which is something that uh, Jews in that country were dying for by not doing you know, all the time. And so they were, they were willing to do whatever it took to get rid of Jesus. And then one last thing that we see later in the book of Acts is that the carriers of the message of Christ are finally cast out of the temple and then the doors are slammed shut. When Paul is in the temple complex and some of the Jews stir up the mob around him, they accuse him of taking Greeks into the temple complex, um, which would have been probably the, uh, that outer area. There's the, the temple and there's that wall around the temple. And there was the courtyards out there, the the, temp, the, uh, uh, the court of the Greeks out there. There's a, there was a wall kind of gate, gated area where they could not come in if you were a Greek in that area. And they accused him of bringing somebody in there. So what they do? They went in there, a mob grabbed Paul, drug him out, and shut the gates. And it's just really interesting that Luke included that little detail, that they slammed the gates behind Paul, almost symbolically finally shutting out the gospel of Jesus from the temple, or the, the message of the presence of Christ, the uh, presence of God from the temple complex. So they drag Christ's followers, and that's the last mention that we that we see of anything taking place in the temple, is that story. So that's in Acts chapter, chapter 21. So that's kind of the, uh, the way that Jesus returns, the presence of God returns to uh, the temple, and then how he is ultimately rejected from the temple. But let's look at these three living temples that I alluded to at the beginning of our, of our time tonight. Three living temples. The first one uh, is Jesus. Jesus refers to his body as the temple in John 2, 13 through 23, whenever he talks about tear down this temple in three days I will raise it up. Uh, and then in parentheses, uh, John adds there, they didn't realize it, but he was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the building. And so Jesus refers to his body as the temple. In Matthew 12, 6, uh, referring to the temple, Jesus says something greater than the temple has arrived, that something being himself. He's referring to himself. Uh, in Psalm 118, uh, 23 to 23, right before this is um, the, the, the parable of the uh, managers of the vineyard who don't take care of it, who mismanage the, uh, the vineyard. And uh, right after that, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22 through 23, uh, talking about the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So in other words, he, he talked about these, these Jewish religious leaders who were supposed to be managing the temple and the worship of God, but they were doing so inappropriately. And then he says, and now here's this cornerstone that all the builders rejected. And now this stone has become the chief cornerstone, uh, referring to himself. And so he, this comes right after that parable about the keepers mismanaging uh, the temple. And so Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone, but then Paul and Peter uh, pick up on that, on that language, and they refer to Jesus as the cornerstone on which the temple, referring to the church, is being built. So uh, let, me, let me flip over to, to a couple of these. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 20 is one of them. Um, it says that, uh, I'll back up to verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so Jesus is the cornerstone in which all of us are being grown into a, uh, a temple. And in 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 through 8, has that very, uh, very similar language uh, in it. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who, uh, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey uh, the word as they were destined to. And so he, he talks about us being living stones, being built up into a spiritual house. Um, if you have a, a, a Bible with notes on it, it may have a little asterisk after that. And down at the bottom, it may say that that could also be translated as a holy temple or as a spiritual temple. And so you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices. And so Peter and Paul both picked up on this language of Jesus being the cornerstone on which the temple, the believers, is being built. Um, we, at the very beginning of our study, we talked about Jesus, the Lamb, in Revelation being referred to as the temple. That's found in Revelation 21, 22. Uh, it specifically says, uh, God and the Lamb, who is the temple, um, in, that, in that passage. Uh, in Ezekiel's vision, the future temple of the future temple, a river flows out of the throne, similar to Revelation's description of the river flowing out of the throne of the Lamb in Revelation 22, 1 through 2. So this future temple that Ezekiel envisions mimics the vision that we see of Revelation where Jesus, the Lamb, is the temple and the river flows out from his throne. So we kind of, we still get this idea that Jesus is this living temple. And then finally, uh, just kind of what does this mean? Jesus as the new temple replaces the physical temple as the avenue of access to and worship of Yahweh. And so since he is that new temple, he is the means of access for us to God the Father, which is why uh, Hebrews tells us that he is our great high priest who sits at the right hand of God, who's interceding on our behalf. He is our access point to, uh, to God the Father. He is our uh, God in the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the one who sits in between us and the Father. All right? And a couple of others, we as believers are also called the temple of God. Um, we are called the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God on earth uh, is in each one of us. Therefore, we have each become a holy temple. We are the carriers of, of God's presence. And so we become uh, a living temple. And we just read two verses that uh, talk about us being uh, you know, living stones or uh, uh, you know, living uh, living stones that are built up into a temple as a, as a group. We'll talk about that in a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, refers to us being the, the temple of the Lord, verse 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So you as a believer specifically are described as the temple of God. One thing that's interesting, what did we talk about at the beginning? What did 
What did the Romans do to Herod's temple? They tore it apart. Not a stone left upon another. It says right here, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. You notice the Romans kept on living for a while. <laughs> now, none of those Roman soldiers died because they destroyed God's temple. Why? Because that wasn't God's temple. You know, God wasn't uh, God wasn't offended by them tearing down that temple because he was never in it in the first place. Um, and so we as believers are the temple, but then also we as the church are the temple. The believers together, the church, is referred to as a temple together. That passage we just read in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 16 through 17, talking about together we are the temple. Ephesians 2, 21 through 22 says the same thing. Uh, we read that earlier about us being living stones, being built together with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And so Jesus is the cornerstone on which our, the whole building rests. So everything that we are as believers, as that holy temple, Jesus is the cornerstone on which we, uh, we, uh, we rest. And the final thing I just want to kind of point out, just as a uh, kind of to fill in the backstory of us as believers being the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, um, think, back to, uh, think back to the, uh, the, the Old Testament. Uh, when God's presence entered the tabernacle and when God's presence entered Solomon's temple. What did that look like? Somebody described to me the scene when God's presence filled the tabernacle. Huh? Okay, there was a cloud. What else? Fire. Rushing wind. You know, coming down like that. Now jump ahead to Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, whenever they were up in that upper room praying, it says suddenly a great sound filled the room and... And a wind came in, and, and tongues of fire separated and, and were above each one's head, and they were speaking in tongues. And uh, that's what it's described there in, in Acts 2, 2 through 4. And so in the same way, the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit is kind of a throwback to the coming of God's presence into the tabernacle and the temple. So in the same way that God you know, put himself into the tabernacle and put himself into the temple, his spirit comes down, he puts himself in his new temple. Isn't it amazing that the same, huh? Woof, woof. Uh, just, it's, it's kind of like uh, Montessori school, so you just spill it however you want to and you get 100. <laughs> uh, but the same, the same way that God entered the tabernacle and the temple, he entered his new temple. You know? He separated, he came down with the same sound, the same wind, the same. Uh, vision of fire, but then that fire didn't just come down in a column. What did it do? It separated, and it went to each one. You know, and it, what did it do? It rested on top of them. It, it said it was it was above them, above every one of their heads. The same way that whenever it came to the temp, the tabernacle, it hovered above the tent. You know, they could see it visually. So it's just kind of a really cool picture that you see. We are the new temple of of God. The presence of God has come down to indwell us, and that and that and that. That moment when the first indwelling, full indwelling of the Holy Spirit, um, it came down and, uh, and, and dwelled in them the same way that it did the tabernacle and the temple. Just a really amazing picture. And so and those are just some evidences that we have become the living temple of God here and now in this time. And so as the living temple, we need to be, uh, first of all, a place where God's power and God's will dwells. And it's carried out um, where the worship of God takes place. You know, we should be involved in personal worship. We as the church combined as, the, as that group temple 
need to be a place where worship takes place and where ministry takes takes place. Because um, remember, the, the temple and the tabernacle was a place of God's presence, a place of God's residence, a place of God's meeting, where God met with people. It was a place of worship. Uh, remember all the most of the words that were used in describing the Levitical priests' jobs in the tabernacle all were words of service, not worship. And we talked about that in week one or two. It was never intended to be a place of worship, even though worship took place. It was a place for those Levites to serve, to minister. Um, and so we as the temple of God should be a place of service, a place of ministry, carrying out uh, the work of the Lord. Um, so there's just lots of implications there that when you realize that you are the temple of God, you go back and you read in what happened in the temple. Um, you see how Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to... Uh, uh, offer a sacrifice of worship, you know, be, we are living sacrifices, basically, um, that uh, really we have taken the place of that sacrificial worship system um, in our hearts, in our own lives. And uh, so we should, we should live as we would expect people would live in the temple of God in that day and time, with the same reverence and awe, the same gratitude, same thanks, thankfulness. Um, so pretty interesting things to, uh, to think about.